This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is Burning Questions, Not People. Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. DiStefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound, we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Welcome to today's episode from Wilder Olive, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible, current events edition. I'm Jennifer Bird, And I'm Jean Patrol. Jennifer. Hey, Jean. So, Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah. Incredible movie, huh? It is incredible. And uh, I was really happy to see that Lily Gladstone, who played Molly, was nominated for a best, I always want to say best actor. I know they say actor, actress, but I say actor no matter who I'm Mm -hmm. talking about. So it's very exciting that she was nominated and If she gets it, she'll be the first Indigenous woman to win an Oscar. Yeah, very exciting moment. It is exciting. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder if we could start with you sharing a little bit with listeners about, because you had the idea that we could talk about this, and I wonder if we could start by maybe you sharing what made you want to talk about this with Wild Olive listeners. To be honest, the first thing that crossed my mind was simply the way that biblical traditions did fuel a great deal of the interactions between Europeans coming to this continent and then the way that they chose to interact with Native peoples was often influenced by by biblical ideas, or they would draw upon biblical texts to talk about the Native people. There's a Native American, Robert Allen Warrior, who writes about this in general. And I, you know, learned about it from him first, probably, and then read about it elsewhere. But he says, you know, many Puritan preachers were fond of referring to Native Americans as Amalekites and Canaanites. In other words, people who, if they would not be converted, were worthy of annihilation. Yeah. And that, for me, just sets the stage for, oh, all kinds of conversations about... All right, that's very specific. What about other su- more subtle ways, right? Do people interacting here uh, draw upon biblical ideas? So that was my first thought in terms of why why it belongs in our podcast. Yeah. But it sounds like you also had additional thoughts about that. Well, yes, I have quite a few thoughts that I'd like to share about it. Like you, I also noticed there's a way in which the film's villain, Bill Hale, 
who is the head of, I mean, let's face it, it's a Scorsese crime drama, mm-hmm. and he is the head of a crime family. Yep. It's, a, it's a crime ring, mm-hmm. and it's organized crime, and they're working to take head rights, which yeah. is the right of a particular Native individual to the mineral rights on the property that they're living on. And I want to also mention, of course, in the background of this is the Trail of Tears. The Native American writer Joy Harjo always takes care to say that there wasn't one Mm -hmm. Trail Mm -hmm. of Tears. There were many trails of tears Yes, as people were driven west and made to settle on the most dry infertile land. Unappealing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just the worst land. But then the Osage people found out that there's oil on this agriculturally unproductive land. And so then the Osage became the richest people per capita in the nation. And not surprisingly, Euro-Americans wanted to find a way to claim that wealth. So Bill Hale in the movie is the head of this family that tries to take this mineral wealth and and is successful for a long time they have a a plot in which they murder indian people and i want to say for our listeners i think probably scorsese's film has gotten enough press that people know this is based on a true story it's not right. fiction right and i also want to mention that the chickasaw novelist and poet linda hogan wrote a novel that's also based on the Osage murders. I know that folks are talking a lot about David Grant's book that the movie is based on. And also there is this Native American novel by a celebrated Native American novelist that's also about the Osage murders. So uh, many people were killed. A lot of wealth was stolen. And the person who organized all of this is this guy, Bill Hale. And in the movie, He's played by Robert De Niro, and he's constantly spritzing the air with references to the Bible, the time of affliction, and the Osage are the most beautiful people on God's green earth. And just before we started recording, you mentioned that scene where he asks his nephew, Ernest Burkhart, who he brings into this plot to marry Molly, do you believe in the Bible, son? Uh, So there are so many references to the Bible, and I think what I really notice is that He constructs his persona, like who he appears to be is not who he is. Right. He appears to be this upstanding citizen, and he does so much for the Osage, and he uses the Bible and uses Catholicism and Christianity as camouflage. Right. Because he's really a horrible criminal. Yeah, absolutely. And also... It's it's interesting the way it's sprinkled in there, his interactions with women and quite young. Yes, yes. <laughs> and there was a moment when one of the one of the native women was was murdered and then shortly thereafter they discovered she'd been pregnant. And when his nephew informs him that she was pregnant, his first question is, by me? <laughs> I mean, it's just this weird, like, oh, okay. Um right. And that's the first time we get a glimpse into he is dabbling um, with these people in all kinds of ways, not just for their money, but also for their bodies in ways that it's just appalling, right? But I, I liked that you, you said, oh, you know, Jennifer's been writing on marriage in the Bible, no wonder. And that is a really important element of how this whole 
criminal network worked, right? Yes. Was, was through this very intentional marrying of Native peoples, intermarrying, right, between Euro-American, you know, white men and these Native people. And it's interesting, too, because the early on we have, we do get to see a scene of several, I think, primarily sisters and then Molly and her sisters and maybe a friend or two talking about, well, you know, Ernest seems to have, you know, be keen on you. And their conversation about it is very, it's not naive, but it's very maybe more typical relational. Well, he's just after your money. No, I think he actually likes you, you know, this and that. And behind the scenes, of course, right? Because Ernest is apparently rather influential. Uh, in, he can be easily influenced. Yes, right? yes. He's not maybe this, you know, most savvy person. So he's interested in her, but he's also being played by his uncle. And it is all through, as you said, you know, very much this idea of using marriage as a weapon, really. And what struck me, actually, as you and I were chatting about this briefly before we started recording, was that's interesting, too, since it's the flip of what we see, biblically speaking, right? In, the, in biblical contexts, in the, in especially around the Joshua narrative and the taking over of the land and then also interacting with others, there are all these proscriptions to intermarrying, if you will. And, of course, the framework of that is around you'll be led to worship their gods, where you don't want to be led astray. But there are all kinds of, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah are just full of this kind of, you know, stay away, do not touch, which is interesting because, of course, they were. <laughs> that's, why, yes. that's why they had to keep being retold over and over again. Yeah. But, you know, there's an element to me, there were a couple pieces of this movie that then made me start to think about what was actually going down in the ancient contexts, I start thinking about that a little bit differently. So I don't, I don't want to get into all that Ooh. right now. I want to kind of, I know. I kind of want to get into it. Do you want to get into that? Let's it, just, it, let, If you don't mind. Let's just go. Yeah. Let's just do it, okay. right? Let's so do the, it. So you first. You first. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's not a big thing, but it was not too far into the movie. I was thinking about why. These, this issue of trying to claim this land, and you see, you see that Bill Hale talking about, you know, I've got, I've got no oil. You know, this is cattle, no oil, no fear. This, you know, my my wealth isn't going to dry up. And but you know, he actually really wants the land with the oil. Like so, he he's does. trying to he's trying to make it seem like everything's great here. And it, you know, I started reflecting on, well, of course he wants the land with oil. When you look at the initial description of the promised land, so mm -hmm. the initial description is quite a large swath. It's not just mm -hmm. where they end up, but it's a significant chunk of what's referred to as the Fertile Crescent. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, you know, and so flipping on its head, right, why would someone make that kind of a claim? Why would someone want to claim that specific region is what God has told you is yours to take or yours to have, right? It's about resources. It's about yeah, milk trade. and honey. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, not even about the milk and honey. I'm thinking more of the trade, the international trade route that the fertile, I mean, yes, it's fertile, so it's production, right? But also that's important in terms of 
being able to, if you know, having a stance in sure. that strip makes you a player in the Absolutely. politics. Absolutely. Right in the middle of everything. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost, it's funny. I think part of what I'm reflecting on here with you is I had always been thinking about, well, flowing with milk and honey. Sure, there's plenty or whatever. That's more just a pretty saying. And I'd never really thought of it through that lens of resources. Yeah. I just thought yeah. of it as we could live. You can sustain yourself. Yeah. So, so to think about with Killers of the Flower Moon, this is about resources and yeah. all the different machinations. It was just kind of a fun way to think about, reconsider the promised land, the definition of the promised land initially. I don't know if I'm making sense yeah, here. but That makes sense to me. I really like that. Um, and that milk and honey image to me means you can eat like there's there's surplus. Yes. And that fear of starvation and fear of being unable to eat, I think, is so much closer to the bone in desert communities and in the ancient world than it right. is to most of us here. I mean, of course, there's also a lot of hunger in the United States. I also feel like included in that, just that idea that wherever there is economic advantage, people will attach a mythology to that yes. <laughs> to justify the claiming of the economic advantage. And that includes marriage. Marriage is another one of those spheres of potential economic advantage yep. that people will romanticize and mythologize because it's a way to, let's say, organize resources. Yeah. Jennifer, I am wondering if I could read you yeah. a short bit from Linda Hogan's novel. I think that's a great idea. So Hogan, of course, did a lot of research also into the Osage murders and is very interested in the novel, just as the film is interested in looking at the way marriage plays a role in the way that Euro-Americans claim the resources of Native Americans. And I have to confess, I have an ancestor who married an Ojibwe woman, and he was a French fur trader. And I always thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I had my initial thought was, oh, yeah, well, they were all in the Great Lakes area and they had an occasion to trade and meet and fall in love. Yeah, not really. Um, if fur traders could marry a Native American woman, it was a way to keep peace with the Native American That's right. That's nations right. in That's the right. area and a way to learn all about the trade routes and the pathways. I learned that the person who's credited with founding Chicago, DuSable, was married to a Native American woman, which mm. you never learn about when... Yeah. <laughs> you learn about DuSable, but that's why he was able to turn Chicago into a major trade route because the natives knew it. They knew all that. <laughs> and Euro-Americans needed that knowledge. Anyway, so in the novel, a young man writes a letter to Hale. Dear sir, I am a young man with good habits and none of the bad with several thousand dollars and want a good Indian girl for a wife. I am sober, honest, industrious man and stand well in my community. I want a woman between the ages of 18 and 35, not a full blood, but prefer one as near white as possible. 
I lived on a farm most of my life and know how to get results from a farm as well as a mercantile business. Having means it is natural. I want someone my equal financially as well as socially. If you can place me in correspondence with a good woman and I succeed in marrying her, for every $5,000 she is worth, I will give you $25. If she is worth $25,000, you would get $125 if I got her. This is a plain business proposition, and I trust you will consider it as such. So, I, honestly, I thought of you. I thought of you when I read it, and I thought of your book, Marriage mm -hmm. in the Bible, because mm -hmm. I know that you're keen to demythologize the idea of biblical marriage. <laughs> and here, I mean, in the novel Mean Spirit and in Killers of the Flower Moon, women are business investments. It's an economic transaction. Right. And so when I rewatched the movie, I thought, well, no wonder that Jennifer is really interested in this movie because she's really interested in the role of marriage in the objectification of and commodification of yeah. women. That's yes. what it is. Yes. Commodification. That's right. That's right. It really is. In the biblical texts, as well as what we see for the Osage women in particular. Listeners, we'll be right back with more casual conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. Current events. Hang tight. So, Jean, I think there was something in particular you wanted to discuss. Yeah, I wanted to go back to this business about Bill Hale constructing his public persona out of this, he wears this mantle of piety, this mantle of religiosity, mm -hmm. and it helps him hide his greed and his evilness because it is beyond greed. It isn't just mm -hmm. the desire for money. It's yeah. also a desire for power to manipulate people, to run things. Right. He has his nephew call him king. That's what he wants. He wants to control things, right? To, the power to control right. people. Right. So I wonder if we could talk a bit more about the way the film explores how people can use religion as a mask for mm -hmm. wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. Because I'm sorry to say it's in terribly, terribly common, right? And it, it's almost as if you can be sure if someone is parading around with a public mantle of righteousness, you can almost be sure that they're doing something really creepy underneath all that. <laughs> I hate to put it wow. quite so. I don't mean to over-exaggerate, but... I mean, given all of the sexual abuse scandals and sexual harassment right. scandals in the church, children being abused, women being abused, I just right. feel like we gotta gotta look at that, right? And I yes, feel like the, exactly. the movie is a way to look at that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we talked about that scene where Hale says, "You believe in the Bible, miracles of old. You expect yeah, this all was... to go away, right?" Yeah, can you right. reflect like, a little bit? Like it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was struck by again, I didn't I don't think I processed it on my own as thoroughly as you've kind of, you know, boiled it down for us here, but yeah, he sprinkles it in. He's yeah. very clever, I think is is the point. He refers to, you know, this his wealth isn't going to dry up, but 
yeah, like the Osage people's wealth is going to dry up like the seven years of famine that plagued the pharaohs of old makes it sound so, you know, I don't even know what the word is there. But then he also slides in this, he plants a seed of, but they're a sickly people. They're not a sickly people. They're not. They're being made sick. Yeah. And so he's into, you know, right? He's planting, he's, you know, this is a newcomer, right? He's just come back from war. He doesn't know what's been going on. And so I'm going to tell him right off the bat so that when he sees all these people being sick, he's going to know that this is just the way it is. It's not something being done to them. He has so many really fascinating references. The one about uh, 45 minutes and he refers to, I, I can't remember the character that he's referring to, but this, the days of affliction have taken hold upon her. I, is he talking about one of Molly's sisters or his mother or her mother maybe? And then this one that you referenced about two hours in where he's, he's trying to get his nephew to side with him, mm-hmm. right? And or, or, yeah, I think it's that point. It's not about Molly's health at that point. And, you know, do you believe in the Bible and the miracles of old? Yes. You know, Ernest says, yes, I do. Well, are you expecting a miracle to make all of this go away? You know, they don't happen anymore. Why does that, you know, someone just asked me on a, another, you know, podcast, why do people use the Bible <laughs> to talk about things today? Like, why does that work? It does somehow, right? It's like a, a cue that I'm, I'm righteous. I'm, I'm holy. I'm trying to, I'm a man of God, something, right? If I can quote scripture, if I can refer to the afflictions of Job, if I can and in a meaningful way, right? Right. Um, I liked your your image of spritzing the air. Yeah. Well, one of the most appalling examples of that is how after he has been put in jail, he's been arrested, he's in jail, and multiple people have confessed that they have killed others at his command. The biblical injunction that he now invokes is judge not. Judge not. We shouldn't judge. It's almost like a verbal tick, Jennifer. Yeah. And I think it's because as a result of the Bible's position in history as the oldest library of sacred texts that we have. And when I say sacred, I don't mean that they're breathed by God and it is the word of God and therefore it is sacred. But because over time... People have attributed them to God, connected them with God, told a story about their, told a story about authorship in which God somehow moves the pens of scribes and all of that. So it has deposited all this authority into this collection of books. Or, I mean, in the United States, we buy, we know we don't have scrolls or parchments anymore. So when we're looking at the library, it's one book. We talk about it as the good book, right? right? Or some people do. And so it is a book to which this sense and atmosphere of authority adheres. And so if you present yourself as close to the book, it's like you borrow some of that atmosphere of authority and I think people do that very freely, and they do it very freely when they have something to hide, because, man, if you're really doing something awful, you really need an extra air of authority. So <laughs> um, so it happens a lot. And I don't mean, I know that there are 
very religious people who are in a very deep engagement with the Bible and who truly do use it to improve their own behavior and make themselves a blessing to other people. So I know that people do that. It doesn't mean that if you're quoting scripture, you're automatically also killing Native Americans or abusing children. Hiding something horrific. Not necessarily, but, but too much. This happens too much and it happens so much that it's a cultural dynamic that I that I do think we have to be aware of that people hide behind its its air of sacredness and its air of authority to do bad things. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly. You're yes, sadly and I think this is a bit of a tangent, but you know, I was just having another conversation with some friends and I, you know, was thinking about biblical texts actually have examples for us of dominion, dominion of men over women, of, you know, taking over God giving you this land and God promising this and all these different, and the biblical examples themselves at times can be drawn upon for unrighteous behavior. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And so because it's in the Bible (laughs) and because people have this sense of it being an authority, that's where it becomes really scary, yeah. right? To me, that there are people who are, you know, I'm picturing this one young man whose video went viral, and he's a young evangelical conservative, and he's quote, you know, he's kind of pointing over his head and biblical passages that talk about men controlling and own, you know, and having dominion over their wives or their women. He's like, just deal with it. It's biblical, you know. It's biblical. Yeah. It is, and. Because he associates God and goodness with the Bible very uncritically, right? That's what allows him to do something like that without being seen as, you know, just an immoral person for wanting to dominate a woman, right? Yeah. So the there's a bigger framework of, you know, checking that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that needs to go on, right? Yeah, I re- I do agree with that. And and that's actually why I think it's important to talk about because the uncritical use of yep. the Bible like this and even the uncritical reception of biblical yes. texts that's right. can really hurt people. Yep. Which is why exactly. I like to to talk about this. I don't it's not because I want to be a Bible basher, but because I've seen so much hurt come about right. as, as a result of this uncritical reception. On the other hand, yeah. I want to point out that in the movie, Molly really trusts her priest. And she goes yeah. to the priest to talk about things. And yeah. many of the Osage people did adopt Catholicism and really found it a helpful addition to their own indigenous religious practices. Like there's an, you know, indigenous theologies and indigenous practices long before Euro-Americans ever get there. There's no blank slate, right? Yep. But some native peoples did adopt and adapt Christianity and find it very useful, just as you would adopt and adapt the use of certain tools, right? Or adopt mm-hmm. and adapt particular ways to saddle horses, right? There are things that Euro-Americans brought that were useful and natives didn't hesitate to adopt and adapt. And so Molly trusts her priest. Molly asks Ernest early in the movie, uh, what's your religion? And, mm-hmm. you know, he's so, uh, he's at such loose ends. In one, mm-hmm. in one review, it called him witless. 
I don't know if I'd yeah. go quite that far, but he is kind of a dunderhead. And, and he says, mm, Catholic. And the, the impression is that there is this veneer of religion that you can wear, kind of put it on like a raincoat or something. And it doesn't really affect your behavior. It doesn't affect your <laughs> attitudes. You just go around in it. It's uh -huh. a, a handy little uh -huh. ready-made identity. But for Molly, it's really integrated within her own spirituality. And she's a deeply yes. religious woman. Yes. There are many scenes of Molly praying. Yeah, that's right. Praying at dawn. Dawn is dawn. a good time mm -hmm. to pray. Um, yeah. Scenes of her praying with family members, praying, right. praying over with her, her children. mom, with her children. She's, yeah. she's modeling it for her yeah. children. Yep. Deeply yep. prayerful. And so I guess I just also want to balance the, our, sure. our observations about the the dangerous sides of of Bible quoting and um, mm -hmm. kind mm -hmm. of identities based on some kind of proximity to biblical texts, that there are also texts that were deeply meaningful for some Native Americans, and some Native Americans were really able to integrate Catholicism. In one review, I read that. Catholicism really resonated with the Osage because so many Native American religious traditions are based on ceremony. I was going to say there's a lot of ritual. Yeah, so there's much a lot ritual. of kind of pomp. Yes, that's, yes. Yeah, formal circumstances. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, these very, you know, beautiful ritual processions and objects. And that made yes. sense. That made sense exactly. to, to many Natives. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So I also, I just wonder if I could read a little bit more from Linda Hogan's novel. For people who are interested in Killers of the Flower Moon, I think you'd really be interested in Linda Hogan's novel, Mean Spirit. It's really easy to read. It's based also on the Osage murders. I would say that the novel goes into much more depth about Native mm. spirituality. In some of the reviews mm. of Killers of the Flower Moon, I think there is a fair, mild criticism that it's very focused on the FBI, on the <laughs> crime, <laughs> on the people organizing the crimes and the people right. solving the crimes. And there is some focus on the Native Americans. Mean Spirit really goes very deeply into the experience of the Osage, including the religious experience. There's a character who is a Native Christian pastor. There are characters who lose their faith as a result of all of the affliction, let's say, the spiritual affliction. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there's a character who's writing a gospel. But the gospel, this, the good news that the character is, is talking about is not about Jesus. Mm -hmm. He wants to add a book about the Bible. He wants to add what it is hmm. the Bible left out. And uh -huh. so there's an excerpt from the Book of Horse is what it is. And so this is what this character wishes to be added to the Bible. Honor Father Sky and Mother Earth. Look after everything. Life resides in all things even the motionless stones. Take care of the insects, for they have their place, and the plants and trees, for they feed the people. 
Everything on earth, every creature and plant, wants to live without pain, so do them no harm. Treat all people in creation with respect. All is sacred, especially the bats. Live gently with the land. We are one with the land. We are part of everything in our world, part of the roundness and cycles of life. The world does not belong to us. We belong to the world, and all life is sacred. Pray to the earth, restore yourself and voice, remake your spirit so that it is in harmony with the rest of nature and the universe. Keep peace with all your sisters and brothers. Humans whose minds are healthy desire such peace and justice. What I want to ask you, Jennifer, is do you see that as being in any way in conflict with whatever religious traditions you can see growing out of the Bible. There are so many. And one criticism of the Bible is that it doesn't pay enough attention to stewardship of the earth and overemphasizes dominion. But I know that dominion, that's an English word. So I don't really know, like in the Hebrew, just how separate are the humans, the earthlings? How separate are they from creation? And are they really charged with dominion? Or is that Hebrew word really something else. I wonder if you could just riff a little bit on, you know, that vision of spirituality kind of in connection with, you know, there are so many different spiritualities associated with biblical texts. So <laughs> pick any one of them. I don't okay. know. What, whatever well, you what want. The, the first thought that comes to my mind when you pose this question, Jean, is, you know, we we find what we're looking for. Mm. Right? So if if coming out of a framework that says that humans are the peak of creation, look, we're the last ones created, right, in that first creation story. Well, that's one way to look at it. But you can also look at it differently, which is all of these things are being created. They are all considered good, right? All of it is God reflects on that day and says, well, that was good. You know, this is good stuff. I'm I'm done here. This is really good stuff. And, and so we don't have to read it yeah. through the lens of God said to have dominion over the earth and all that. We can look at it more of, you know, there's a all of these things that are created are deemed good. And there's an element to humans that is different from these other animals. Therefore, they, they are tasked with taking care. And I think that the second mm. story... In reinforces that idea because the humans are literally coming mm -hmm. out of the earth. They are literally stuff mm. of the earth. And if that doesn't connect you <laughs> to everything else, yeah, yeah, I don't know what will. You mm -hmm. know, but I do. Yeah, I do think that part of why so many—I'll just say Christians—but so many people in general don't see that comes out of the centuries of directing our attention to one thing and not the other, right? Or even you could say mm -hmm. that the people in the land of Canaan and their worship practices involved all kinds of different ways of depicting the god or the gods as they worshiped. And one of the ways that these people that became the Israelites differentiated themselves was in not doing that. So that you have an element of separation of humans from the rest mm -hmm. of the created order that is perhaps on the backside 
of this other intention, right? Mm-hmm. So that then you start to take what's meant to be don't do these other practices and it becomes God is separate from or what is holy and sacred is separate from the creation and the created order, which mm-hmm. I don't think that's necessarily what the early creation story is suggesting, right? Mm, yeah. And then there's also in in Proverbs, I love talking about this with students, that there's a very short section in Proverbs chapter nine, I think it is, eight or nine. It talks about wisdom is the first thing created and wisdom is there at the creation of all mm. else. And, you know, that all is imbued with this thing we call wisdom. So we're all a part of this. You know, this is a very loose engagement with that passage. But I think that, you know, so as with, goodness, any topic, right? (laughs) Looking at people who do this, this historical study of Jesus, you know, who was the real guy? Well, every single description you get basically reflects the person who's doing the searching, right? Right? I mean, yeah. you're into political justice, you're going to see a political yeah. justice Jesus. You're into spirituality, you're going to see a spirituality Jesus. Same thing with this. So right. I think specifically Euro, European colonizing agenda and interpretation of scripture and starting in the 15th, 16th century has really been, has predominated for a lot of people. And they, they took that around the globe. So there's this really unfortunate trend for many Christian traditions to not see that what you might call animism or panentheism, right? That God is in all things. God created all things. God's not in all things. Well, maybe we maybe it's okay to loosen up a little bit on that distinction, right? Yeah. And maybe people are not in a position to know exactly and so maybe like some type of epistemic <laughs> humility might maybe. be in yeah. order. Just maybe. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, can I ask you one last sure. thing before we wrap up? So in the online religious press, much was made of Scorsese's Catholicism. So he identifies as Catholic and As many film historians have pointed out, he often makes movies about people who are on kind of, well, they're failing (laughs) at being Catholics or they're, they're failing at being Christians. And he's not always. He also directed Last Temptation of Christ. And in, in my opinion, that Jesus is very successful at being Jesus (laughs) and very, very successful at living his spiritual life in the way that he's directed by God to live. That's my view of that movie. So quite a few of the writers in the online religious press were emphasizing Ernest's inability to confess. And I'm going to say right now, spoiler alert. So if you haven't seen Killers of the Flower Moon and you want to be surprised at what happens at the end, just press pause right now. Come back later because (laughs) I have to ask Jennifer about Ernest. So Molly really wants him to tell her to her face. Yeah. What he's done. 
And she seems to have mm-hmm. a love for him. She seems to have a love for him, even though mm-hmm. I think she knows that he's yeah. harming her. And she wants it to be said between yes. them. And I think I won't exactly spoil the movie completely, but I will tell you that, like in the Gospel Coalition, in mm. their writing about the movie, the writer thought that Ernest had this opportunity to confess and to be able to receive this amazing grace, basically, from like that was the narrative that they were hoping would play out in the film. It doesn't play out in the film. But I also feel like that is not where the character Molly was going at all, that there wasn't going to be some kind of classical, conventional denouement, right? Mm -hmm. Ever. Yeah. And that she's she's very angry and living in this state of painful clarity about who she's actually married. And at the same time, kind of for the sake of the integrity, really of of her world, would just like to have it be said, this is what I was doing, this yeah. is what I've done. So I'm I'm curious if that's how you also read the two of them at the end. Like to me, it's not as simple as he's getting this opportunity to confess and he can either take it or not take it. And if he confesses, there's going to be some kind of fantastic spiritual redemption. And if if he doesn't, he misses it. And I don't see it that way. And I'm just curious how you see it in terms of character yeah, I didn't see it that way at all. And I actually saw that scene yeah. more through the lens of he's not really sure what he's done. He knew what mm. he was doing when he, you know, set up the hits. He knew what he was doing and he was mm-hmm. so beholden to this system and to his uncle. And I don't think he was I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to give him a pass by any means, but I think it was really complicated for him. And I I think think so. You know, he was easily won over by his, by his uncle's deceptiveness. And so that when I, I saw the end of that, their scene right before she gets up and leaves, basically, I really Mm -hmm. see that as he was, did not know that he shouldn't have trusted his uncle. That even at the level of what he's putting in her body, like he did not question, he did not know. He was a little bit too simple of a mind, too trusting, and mm-hmm. was overwhelmed by what she was asking him. That, what do you mean? I was, I wouldn't let him near you. <laughs> he really believed that. Yeah. I think yeah. to... Yeah, to hear that there yeah. are people who were, wanted to see this big reconciliation, I just want to, I just feel like they're living, they're not really paying attention to how complicated humans are and how complicated that whole situation was for Ernest, really. Again, I'm not trying to give him a pass, but, but I think of course, that, yeah, I think that his uncle knew what he was doing when he used Ernest, right? To get at yeah. the healthy woman. Native woman, right? I mean, yes, yeah. I, I I agree with that. I I do agree with that. I think the this, the last thought I wanted to offer is that what's really compelling to me about 
the movie is how well it portrays the capacity of people to use biblical texts actually as a tool of self-deception and as a tool of deceiving others. And that's not to say that biblical texts cannot be life-giving and cannot give rise to really rich and authentic spiritualities, but it is to sound a note of caution about the, the ways that it can be used to, to deceive. Yes. yes, to justify some awful things at times. Yeah, 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 at times. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Jean. This was a fun conversation. It was, it was. All right, till next time. Till next time. Hey, this is Matt Byrne, editor and producer for the podcast. If you like game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell some friends all about the show. You can find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Wild Olive. You may have noticed we changed our schedule recently. New episodes every other week. Our music is composed by Nick Stubblefield. Audio produced by Clara Carrera and Matt Byrne. Want to ask a question? Email the podcast at connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Until our next wild conversation, we'll see you then.